Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Let's get this one started. Go get your coffee or grab a drink. Tell your family, friends, neighbors, tell a stranger. The show is about to begin. Today, we have a three-time Major League Baseball saves leader. He spent 17 years in the MLB as a pitcher. He's a seven-time All-Star, a Cy Young Award winner, the 1981 MVP, a three-time World Series champion, four-time Rolades Relief Man of the Year. He's won a few to have his number retired by more than one team. The Hall of Famer, Raleigh Fingers. Raleigh, how are you today? Real good, Tom. Good. I'm glad to have you on the show. This is going to be fun to uh, go back and learn about what it was like in baseball many, many years ago. You, uh, (laughs) you were born in, yeah, you were born in Steubenville, Ohio. I want to kick off this. Where did the nickname Raleigh come from? Who gave you that? And that stuck forever. Well, my dad, my dad played um, professional baseball with the Cardinals. Uh, him and Stan usual were roommates. Uh, This was, uh, prior to World War II, and, um, but uh, the team that my dad played on, uh, his best friend was the third baseman, and his name was Rolland, and they called him Raleigh, uh, and so my dad named me after his uh, third baseman. I don't know what the, the thing was, but his told me his first name was Rolland, but that's what he called him, Raleigh, and he, that's where the uh, Raleigh came from. And did, did you learn baseball from your father? Is he the one that taught you and brought you into the game? Uh, yeah, uh, more or less, uh, you know, I, we, we'd always play catch and stuff, but I grew up in a town where there was, uh, there was no little league. I mean, uh, I didn't play any organized baseball until I was, uh, I think 11 years old, uh, because of where I lived in, uh, I lived in a small town north of Stubbenville and the, the population there was all coal miners and steel work. That's what my dad did. So we didn't have enough kids on, on, in the town where I grew up to even make a baseball team. So we played, there were six or seven of us that played wiffle ball and uh, I loved wiffle ball. And, uh, I, I liked doing the, you know, making the ball curve and sink and drop and rise and, and do all that with a wiffle ball. So I, that's where I really learned how to throw a baseball was messing around with a wiffle ball. And then when I moved to California, when I was about 11, uh, that's when I got into organized little league and started playing little league, but I never played any uh, baseball up until I was 11. Wiffle ball brings back a lot of childhood memories for me as well. Love that thing. That, uh, there's some great memories of wiffle ball. Raleigh, you guys uh, eventually moved to Rancho Cucamonga, California. Your parents moved there. And I understand that during the transition from moving from Ohio to California, your family would sleep in sleeping bags along the highway en route how many nights? How many nights did you guys have to do this? Uh, well, from uh, Ohio Valley to um, uh, Southern California, I think it was at least three nights. I remember we we uh, we stopped uh, one place in Arizona, and uh, me, and my my brother, we slept on the side of this hill, and we didn't. It was dark, but we laid our sleeping bags out. My my dad slept in the front seat of the car. My uh, mom slept in the back seat. Uh, we didn't really have any money for hotels or motels or anything. So, uh, but uh, that one particular night, we just started hearing a rumble, and a train came by about 
uh, seven or eight feet from our head. We didn't realize there was a, a train track up there. <laughs> scared the heck out of it. That's one way but, to get uh, woken up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, really. So, but yeah, we slept on the side of the road in sleeping bags, usually, you know, pretty close to the car. And, uh, and my dad usually found a safe place to do that. So, uh, but we slept, I think, three nights on the, on the road uh, and, uh, until we got to California. Amazing. And uh, this shows the, the early struggles of, you know, what your childhood was like and to how you grew up. But you eventually get to Upland High School in Upland, California. Early days in high school, were you always a pitcher or did you play other positions as well? Um, well, I, I pitched uh, when I was in Little League and when I was 11 and 12 years old, I pitched. And when I wasn't pitching, I played shortstop. So I was a, I was a shortstop. And then I got uh, when I started playing high school ball, uh, I pitched and I played the outfield. So because um, I could hit. I, had, I was a pretty good hitter when I was in high school. And uh, and then when I uh, when I got to my senior year in high school, uh, we had an American Legion team that I was on. Uh, and, uh, I was playing left field and I was also pitching in our team of uh, small, you know, Upland, I was Upland post 73 back then, uh, American Legion ball and our team, uh, we went all the way to the world series in uh, little rock and, uh, we beat Charlotte for the national championship game. And I had pitched the last, the, the last game to win it, but I also led the nation in hitting in the American Legion that year. So scouts saw me as an outfielder and he also saw me as a pitcher. So when Kansas City uh, signed me my first year of spring training in 1965, they didn't know really which position to put me at. So they put me at both and I did okay at both, but I hit over 300 as a hitter, but I also, every time I pitched, I got guys out. So uh, somebody figured out that I was going to be a better pitcher than a hitter. So uh, that's how I ended up pitching. And there was no draft back then. So the way you ended up in the pros was the scouts saw you at this American Legion and yeah. then you started to get some interest. And I understand the Dodgers offered you $20,000, but your father and you decided that that would not be a place for you to go. And I'll let you explain and why that was not worth taking 20,000, but you accepted 13 to go to the Kansas city athletics. Right. Uh, well, at the time, Kansas city was, a uh, you know, a, a really a lowercase ball club. They were always finishing in the cellar you know, last place. Uh, and they were more or less a minor league team for the New York Yankees. Everybody that went from uh, Kansas City went to the Yankees. That's where Roger Maris ended up going. But um, uh, my dad uh, thought that uh, signing with the Dodgers, uh, in fact, I played for a team called the Dodger Rookies uh, that one summer. And uh, it's a, like a barnstorming team the Dodgers uh, organization sponsored. And, uh, but the, uh, Dodgers that year, uh, went to the world series. They won. They had a great pitching staff. They had Koufax, they had Drysdale, Ron Paranowski. I mean, they had a deep pitching staff and they were going to be around for a while. So my dad thought if I sign with the Dodgers, I'm going to be buried in the minor leagues. And the Dodgers at the time probably had more twice as many teams as, in the minor leagues as most other organizations. So uh, my dad thought that I could move up through the ranks a little bit quicker if I signed with Kansas City. But the Dodgers did offer me 20000 bucks, and my dad said no. And uh, then Kansas City, uh, Art Lilly, a scout for Kansas City, knocked on our door and wanted to, wanted to give us, I think it was uh, $10,000. And uh, my dad said no. I said, we'll sign right now for fifteen. 
And so uh, our lady got on the phone and I called whoever he called and he came back in and said, look, uh, we'll give you 13. And my dad said, okay, that's fine. We'll sign for $13,000. This was on uh, Christmas Eve of 1964. Yeah, this was before the draft. So I got 13,000 bucks. Uh, I gave my dad 3,000 bucks. I bought my mom a sewing machine, which she loved. And I bought a 56 Chevy. <laughs> <laughs> so the 13,000 went I, quick. I blew, I, blew, I blew the rest. It didn't take long for me to go through that. <laughs> you go to class A ball in the mid sixties and Raleigh, if you would talk to me, what was class, what was minor league baseball back in, in the sixties and who were some of your teammates then? Oh, golly. Uh, well, in, uh, in, uh, in Leesburg, Florida, my first year, we had the worst team in, uh, in, uh, that I'd ever played for, even worse than my high school team. <laughs> it was really bad. I mean, I think I, I, think I was like uh, 7 and 15 or something like that as a starting pitcher, and I had a, like a 2.9 ERA, so I had a great earned run average, but we could have been scoring runs. And that was, a long, that was a long season. And then the next year, I went to Modesto in the California League, and uh, uh, that's where uh, some of my teammates were Dave Duncan. Uh, Tony LaRusso was my second baseman. Uh, Joe Rudy was my out, my left fielder. Reggie Jackson was my center fielder. So we had some uh, future stars that were on that, uh, that team. We ended up winning the league that year. Uh, the following year, everybody kind of moved up through the ranks. Reggie was on the team in Birmingham, Alabama uh, in 67, along with Joe Rudy and Dave Duncan. Uh, so, uh, and we just kind of came up through the ranks. That's the way you did it back then. Yeah. And then in 19, and then in uh, 1968, at the end of the season, uh, I was pitching, well, I was pitching in Birmingham and I was, I think I was eight and, or 10 and four or something like that. And they, uh, they asked me to come up, called me up for the last month of the season with the Oakland A's in 68. And, uh, I only pitched in one game. I sat on the bench for three weeks. I think while I was there and never got into a game and I finally did. And they threw me in a game in Detroit against the world champion Detroit Tigers that year. I got knocked around pretty good. I gave up like four runs and an inning in a third. So it was ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Going back, Raleigh, um, before you got called up in 67, where there's always highs, sometimes there's lows. And unfortunately, you had a situation that nobody wants to go through in 67 opening day in the minors. You got hit in the face, broke your cheekbone, your jaw, lost some teeth, had to have your jaw wired shut for five weeks. How was it when you finally got back on the mound again, and how long did it take for you to feel comfortable? It was uh, was kind of tough. Uh, This happened on on opening night, and uh, it was uh, the fifth inning, and I threw a a breaking ball to a left-hander, not really a big guy, and he hit a sinking line drive up the middle, and I threw my arms up in front of me, and it hit me right on my right cheekbone. So it uh, it shattered my cheekbone, broke my jaw. It didn't knock me out. I was laying on my face on the mound, and uh, uh, it was it was painful. But when I bit down, none of my teeth matched up. So oh. uh, I said, well, so I knew my jaw was broken because it was hit pretty hard. And uh, and I spent about eight or nine days in the hospital. And uh, I went from I think I was pitching right around two hundred pounds. That was my weight, and I went from two hundred down to to 168 so i lost quite a bit of weight uh, just uh, uh living on liquids more or less for for almost two months and uh, when i came back i uh, i had the, my first start when i came back was against uh, evansville and i had to face the same guy that 
it hit me. Oh, man. <laughs> so uh, they threw me right back into the frying pan when they did that. So, uh, But he didn't get any hits. I think I knocked him down on the first pitch. <laughs> That's how it was done back then in those days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing funny about that was I did a speech in, uh, in Indiana about, uh, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago, and it was like 40 years since that happened. And a guy came up to me, uh, I was sitting at the dais, and the guy came up to me, and he looked at me and said, you remember that curveball you threw me in Birmingham on opening day? And I said, are you Fred Kovner? He said, yep. And that was the guy who hit me in the head. It was Fred Kovner. He just wanted to come up and say that he was sorry. I said, hey, don't worry about it. And I finally got my glove up in front of my face from that time on. So it was really <laughs> weird to see him. I'll bet that probably had to be a, a weird experience for both both of you guys after so many years. Yeah. In uh, age 21, 1968 through 1976, you're with the Oakland A's. Just to give people some perspective of what is what is then to what is now, your first year's salary was $5,100. And then the winter of that year in 68, you had go to Venezuela to go into the winter league to get some work because I'm assuming then back then, Raleigh, they didn't have the, the fall ball and all that stuff that we have nowadays. Right. Now, yeah, that's for a lot of ball players that maybe they didn't get enough uh, pitching in during the season or wanted to get a little more experience that so would go play uh, ball in Venezuela or uh, Puerto Rico or uh, Dominican Republic. So a lot of, a lot of winter ball down there. You go down there for two, two and a half months and you would make, really more money than you did in the U.S. in the five months that you were playing in the States. So that was one reason why I went. How much did that kind of help your career then by going down there? Well, just getting more experience uh, because, of you know, the, the ball players in Puerto Rico and Dominican and Venezuela, they were good ball players. A lot of them were playing in the States, but when they would go home after the season went in, they would play winter ball. They were playing, they were playing baseball 12 months out of the year, really. So uh, there were some pretty good ball players down there. Uh, I mean, uh, Tom Lasorda, man, he's one of the teams I know. And uh, when I was playing in uh, uh, the Dominican, so uh, but it was good, uh, good experience. Uh, you know, we were playing uh, playing a lot of ball. Uh, I think we played maybe 60, 70 ball games, and uh, then I got home and had maybe a month off, and then uh, go right back to spring training. So it was a good experience. I I, I don't think I would have changed anything. I I like going down there. In 1972, the handlebar mustache comes in. It's been voted the best in history. It was kind of started as a joke because Reggie Jackson shows up with a mustache and then your GM starts offering a bonus for other guys to grow one. Yeah, well, that's more or less what happened. Reggie and uh, Reggie and Charlie Finley, they weren't getting along too good. I don't know if it was the contract negotiations or what, but Reggie came to spring training with a, with a mustache and kind of a part of partial beard. And uh, he wouldn't shave it off. And at the time, there was no facial hair in the big leagues. Nobody had any facial hair. It was like taboo. So um, he wouldn't shave it off. So myself and Catfish Hunter, uh, Daryl Knowles, Bob Black, I think it was four or five of us pitchers decided, hey, let's grow mustaches. And if we grow mustaches, Dick Williams, who was our manager, would say, okay, boys, you know, time to shave the mustaches off. And then Reggie would have to shave his off. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. Somehow Charlie Finley, the owner, uh, found out what was going on, and he sent a memo down to the clubhouse and put it on the bulletin board. Uh, any Anybody who makes the 25-man roster on opening day and has a mustache will get 
So that's the only reason why I grew this mustache was to get $300 out of Charlie Finley. <laughs> and uh, op- opening day, Charlie came down in the clubhouse uh, with uh, 30 checks, uh, 25 ball players, four coaches, and a manager. Everybody with a mustache got uh, $300. And, and we just happened to start winning. I mean, and we were growing long hair. And I think we won like uh, 11 out of our first 15 games or something like that. It was crazy. So, uh, and the fans loved the long hair. We had the white shoes, the colorful uniforms, the mustaches. And we started uh, winning. And uh, we decided to keep them. And uh, that was in 1972 at, uh, when we started it. And so... We ended up winning the World Series in 72 against the Reds. We've got to keep the mustaches after a World Championship. 73, we do it again. 74, we beat the Dodgers. So after three World Championships in a row, it's kind of tough to shave off your mustache. So a lot of the guys kept them. Yeah, and then you guys end up even have Mustache Day, and then yourself and Catfish Hunger, Hunter and Ken Holtzman become known as the Moustache Gang. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we all had them. I mean, the fans loved it. I mean, we were playing at a ballpark that was, oh, uh, you know, about, I don't know, seven or eight miles from uh, Berkeley. And the kids at Berkeley loved us because, you know, it was, you know, the 60s and, and uh, you know, long hair and dancing crazy and having fun. And they were always in the left field or right field bleachers. Uh, that's where they usually hung out during Oakland A's games. So they they loved us, and uh, but we were also winning. We had some good ball players. Yeah, you did. And what made you then, Riley, go to the handlebar part to make it turn into handlebar? Uh, just to be different. Everybody else was just growing a regular mustache. Said, ah, I'm just going to let the ends grow and see what it looks like. And uh, just get, kept getting longer and longer. The guys kind of liked it. I started getting guys out. And so, you know, as long as I'm getting guys out, I'm not going <laughs> to ball. You know, ball players, we're the, we're the most superstitious animals that ever lived. So, uh, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So I, I didn't do it and I just kept it and, uh, I've had it ever since. I came, I came close to shaving it off one, one time. I had a, we were playing a doubleheader against Baltimore and I came in in the first game of a doubleheader, uh, with Frank Robinson at the plate and a runner on first and I had a one run lead. The first pitch I threw him, he hit a home run. Came in in the second game in the same exact situation with Brooks Robinson up. Through the first pitch, he hit the foul pole for a home run. Got two losses in one day on two pitches. And I had the razor right there. I was ready to shave it off, but I decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> and still going to this day. Um, Raleigh, talk to me about how did the decision come? Was it yours, managers, to take you from being a starter's role and transition you to being a reliever, which at that point in time, really, there, was, they did, there wasn't a closer? Um, well, I was uh, really on my way out of baseball. Uh, I was a, I was the starting pitcher in 1971. Dick Williams was our manager, first year manager, and uh, I started out at the beginning of the season. Okay, I think I threw a couple of complete games. I threw a shutout uh, in one game and I hit a home run. So, uh, but then as the season got going on, right around a month into it, I wasn't getting out of the second, third inning. I was, you know, and then I get knocked out and I wait four four more days to get knocked out in the second inning again. And I wasn't getting anybody out. And Dick Williams called me into his office in 71, uh, right around, I don't know, right around the middle of May, I think it was, and said, uh, you're in the bullpen. Uh, you're going to just going to, you know, we're taking you out of the rotation. And I said, okay, well, at least I'm not going to the minors. 
So I started pitching out of the bullpen, and I was more or less long relief, just doing mop-up games and that sort of thing. And uh, we were playing a game against the Yankees in New York, and uh, we were getting beat like 11-3. to 3. And it was early in the game, and uh, all of a sudden it's the uh, uh, eighth inning, and we're ahead 13-11. to 11. And uh, I'm the only guy left in the bullpen. He's got to use me or the pitching coach. I mean, that was the way it was. I mean, <laughs> there was nobody else. So I came in. I pitched two shutout innings, two shutout innings against the Yankees that night. I got a save. He brought me in the next night. I pitched another two innings, got a save. Uh, we went into went from uh, New York to Boston, and uh, the day after that, I, I pitched two and a third innings, got a save. So he called me into his office, and he says, "From now on." In game situations, uh, after the sixth inning, I'm going to go to you. I said, that's fine with me. I was staying in the big league. So uh, that's how I kind of fell into it. I was just at the right place at the right time and did, the, did my job. From 72 to 74, you're pitching between 111 and 126 innings, which was numbers unheard of then. I mean, that just was not around. Really had a great sinking fastball. What was the speed on that, Raleigh? What were you throwing that at? Uh I really don't know. I'm sure I was 93, 94. Um, I, I don't even think they had jug gun back then uh, uh, for radar. Uh, I know in the 82 or 1981, they had a gun on me in the playoffs and I was throwing the ball 90, 92 miles an hour then. And that was in uh, 80, uh, that was in 81. So early, uh, early seventies, I was probably 93, 94. I had a pretty good fastball, but you know, as a closer, uh, velocity is good, but what you really need is control. You, you better have an idea where you're throwing the ball. You don't have an idea where you're throwing the ball as a closer. You're, gonna, you're not going to do well. You have to you have to be in the area, the glove, where the glove's at to, to be successful. And uh, I had halfway decent control. That's why I got by. You guys were part of three-peat World Series champion, 72, 73, 74. And in 74, you're the World Series MVP. You had two saves with one win. Was your team at that point in time just really locked in and focused and feeling like, you know, we can probably win this thing whenever we want and we can just, we're rolling? How was it, and how hard was it to win three in a row? Because, I mean, you just don't hear that anymore. It was, uh, it was, I think the hardest one was the first one, getting getting that first one. I was beating Cincinnati in in seven games. I think that was uh, the hardest one. After that, the second one came uh, came a little bit easier. We, We played the Mets, and the Mets, Mets had a great pitching staff. They had uh, John Mack and uh, Kuzman and Tom Seaver. Uh, so we knew we had our hands full with the uh, Mets, but our pitching stacked up pretty good. We had a great pitching team uh, in those three years with the Oakland A's. I mean, we had, I think we had like four or five 20 game winners. Ken Holtzman won 20 games uh, once. Uh, Vita Blue won 20 games. Uh, I think once Ken uh, Catfish won 20 games two or three times in those. Three years, so we always had a great pitching staff, and these guys were completing 45, 50 ball games a year too. I mean, we we were solid in pitching, and uh, you know, I think our team ERA one year was like two point five for the whole team. Wow, uh, it was that good, and uh, and that's why uh, that's why we won. We won more or less on pitching. We never really blew out a lot of teams. We always won the three to two ball games, the two to one ball games, uh, and that was because of our pitching. They need to do a 30 for 30 on that, on, on those three teams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Somebody needs to get in and start doing a docu-series on that one for sure. <laughs> we, we had some good, good pitching staff those years. Raleigh, in 1972, the World Series Game 3, 
I was cracking up when I, I was learning about this. You had a fake free pass to Johnny Bench, end up striking him out. Talked about that. Uh, well, geez, uh, that was, yeah, it was game three. I think it was in the, uh, I think we were in the uh, uh, top of the uh, ninth inning. And uh, I had runners that, I, kept, I came into the game, there was runners at first and the third, and Johnny Bench was the uh, hitter. And uh, there was one out. And uh, I got the I got the count to uh, to uh, it was uh, two and two, and I threw a breaking ball in, in the dirt, and it got a little bit away from uh, from Gene Tennis, my catcher. So uh, Bobby Tolan was on first, he went to second, and Joe Morgan was on third. So I have a three-two count, and the runners on second and third, and one out. So somebody calls time, and I, I'm looking around. And Look over Sal Bando, my third baseman. I said, "Who called time?" And she says, "I don't know." I said, "Here comes Dick, though. Dick coming out of the dugout. Williams, our manager." And so he gets to the mound, and uh, this is where we got really crazy. He's looking at Gene Tennis, my catcher, and he's talking to me, and he's telling me he's looking at Gene Tennis, and he's saying, "Raleigh, I want you to stand up like you're going to do an intentional walk from your stretch, and I want you to pitch to Johnny Bench. I want you to throw." Uh, pitch to him on, the, on the, this next pitch. And then he looks at me and he's talking to Gene Tennis. He says, Gino, I want you to stand up, hold your glove out like we're going to do an intentional walk and as soon as Raleigh picks up his leg, I want you to jump back down in behind home plate and we're going to pitch to, to uh, the bench. And that was it. And before he left, he said, he said I want to make sure you throw a, 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 a slider. I don't want you throwing a fastball because if we don't feel, you know, trick him, we don't want to. We don't want him hitting the fastball. And then he walked back to the dugout. <laughs> and so me and Sal Bandon were standing there after he walked back. And I looked at Sal. I said, "Did you just hear what I heard?" <laughs> yeah, he said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I hope this works." And so I I went to my stretch, kind of nonchalant, uh, you know, just like we were going to do a, uh, an intentional walk. Gene was standing with his arm out with his glove and. Uh, uh, Joe, Joe Morgan on third base started screaming at bench. He said, we're going to, they're going to pitch to you, John. They're going to pitch to you. And as soon as I heard Morgan yelling, I just picked up my leg and Gene jumped back down behind home plate. I threw a slider. I could have sat out there with a bucket of baseballs and not throwing a better slider. It was right on the uh, outside corner at the knees, strike, call strike three. So it worked. We ended up losing the game, but at least that play worked. <laughs> bench, bench has always come up to me and said, that's the most embarrassing moment I've ever had on the field. How so bad? Better you than, better you than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> the DH rally was implemented in 1973 in the American League. And as you talked about just a little bit ago, pitchers back then went the distance a lot. So they're always, you know, at the plate hitting you talked about it very early on in the podcast about, you know, your hitting success. How was your hitting in uh, the majors? Uh, it wasn't that bad. I, I think I had 30-some hits. I hit a couple of home runs. Uh, I got a base hit in the World Series. But, you know, I didn't really get a whole lot of opportunities being a relief pitcher. I might only get, you know, six to eight, maybe ten at-bats a season. So, you know, I struck out a lot, too, because you don't see majors <laughs> It's a little different when you're you're pitching, but you go up to the plate and you're looking at a ninety-something-mile-an-hour fastball. It's a little bit different than throwing it. Yeah, <laughs> so it was a little tough, but I had a pretty good idea how to hit. So I got I got my swings in, but I did get a few hits. I got probably about thirty hits. I think my 
lifetime batting average is like maybe 180, somewhere in there. I'm not sure. But I, I did get a few hits. There you go. June of 76, you were purchased by the Boston Red Sox from Oakland on the 15th. And then three days later, it was voided and returned. And then there was a situation with the team and the GM, and then you guys got benched, and there was a possible player strike. Talk about that situation. Uh, well, uh, that was uh, – I came. we were playing the Boston Red Sox in Oakland uh, right around mid-June, and I got to the clubhouse, and our uh, clubhouse guys uh, came over to me and said, hey, you've just been sold to the Boston Red Sox. And I said, what? Said, yeah, you and Joe, Rudy, both got sold to the Red Sox. So uh, Joe and I had to go into our club, into the clubhouse, pick up all of our stuff, and go over to the Boston clubhouse right across the hall uh, into the Red Sox uh, uh, clubhouse. And the Vita Blue got to the ballpark, and he found out that he was sold to the Yankees. And so um, Joe and I are in uniform for three days during the Boston series in Oakland, but we didn't play. Joe, I think, was, uh, had, was hurt a little bit and couldn't play. And uh, I got up and warmed up a couple of times, but I never got into a ball game. But after the series was over with, Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner of baseball, nixed the deal and said, look, you guys go back to your ball club. So Joe and I just picked up all of our stuff out of our locker at our Boston clubhouse, went back over into the Oakland A's clubhouse. <laughs> and we were over there for two weeks. And Charlie Finley thought that Bowie Kuhn really screwed him. And out of three and a half million dollars, because he, that's what uh, Yaki of the Red Sox paid for Joe and I was one million each. And uh, I think Steinbrenner gave Charlie a million and a half for Vida. So Charlie Finley lost three and a half million dollars. So Charlie Finley thought he was right. Bowie Coon said, no, you can't treat players like that. So for two weeks, Joe, myself, and Vida Blue didn't suit up. We were at the ballpark. We went out and worked out. Prior to the game, you know, took batting practice, threw on the side. Uh, but once the game started, we were in our regular street clothes. We weren't allowed to even be on the bench. Charlie said, you guys aren't going to be on the bench. You're not going to play. So we did that for two weeks. And uh, finally, it got to the point where the players were frustrated. We lost, I think we lost six games in those two weeks where our Joe Rudy is our best hitter. Might have missed two or three starts. And I didn't pitch one game for two weeks. And so we lost some ball games that we could have possibly won. And uh, so the players were frustrated. We were frustrated. So we had a team meeting. Um, and uh, the, during the team meeting, Chuck Tanner is our, our manager then. Uh, we all voted that we're not going to play tonight. Minnesota just came into town. Uh, we were supposed to play them. Uh, I don't know how, much, how many people were going to be there, but uh, we all decided we're not going to play the game there. We're going to forfeit. Forfeit the game. Charlie's going to lose the gate. going to lose all the money. We're going to get a loss. And so Chuck Tanner called up Charlie in Chicago and said, hey, Charlie, the boys aren't going to play today. They're walking. They're going out in their cars. They're getting their cars and going home. And he's, he's screaming that Chuck Tanner, they can't do that. they got to play. Said, nope, they're not playing, Charlie. Uh, you know, that's just the way it is. Uh, Sal Bander was our team captain. And uh, he was in the meeting with uh, with uh, Chuck Tanner on the phone with Charlie. We're not playing. So uh, Chuck Tanner comes out a few minutes later and uh, reads the lineup card. And uh, he had two lineup cards, one with Rudy, one without Rudy. Chuck Tanner uh, said, which one do you want me to read to the ball, to the team? And so Charlie uh, 
Uh, Chuck started reading the lineup in front of the team, and Bert Campanaris leading off, hitting second, Billy North, hitting third, Joe Rudy. As soon as he said Joe Rudy, we all were taking our clothes off, getting ready for the ball. Game. That's how we got. That's how we got back on the team. Is we had to, we had to uh, tell Charlie Finley that we weren't going to play a game. He was going to lose the gate, which would have been a dollars to him. So he, that's what he bought. That's what he buckled in. And did that affect the rest of the season then? How you guys were? Uh, well, we finished. Uh, we finished in second place that year. We got beat by Kansas City, I think, by a game and a half. So the fact that we maybe set out for two weeks and didn't play, we may have won. We may have won that division that year. But uh, you know, who, who knows what would happen? <laughs> yeah, uh, November '76, you were granted free agency, and then in December, you signed with San Diego, and you were with them from '77 to '80. In '80, what I want to jump to, Raleigh, is December 8th of 1980. You were traded to St. Louis in a 10 over 10 player deal. But then four days later, you're traded to Milwaukee. Were you aware when you first were traded to, to St. Louis that you might be going to Milwaukee? Oh, no, I had I had no clue. I had, uh, I'd had problems with the Padre, uh, front office in, uh, in 1980. They, they had hired Jerry Coleman as the manager, which they should have never done in the first place. Uh, it was just a crazy season. And I jumped all over Ballard Smith and Jack McKeon. We didn't know what they were doing. And I said, just, I told them to trade me. I said, get me out of here. I don't care where you send me. Just trade me. Get me out of here. So that winter, they traded, they, during the winter, winter meetings, um, uh, the San Diego Padres made a trade with, uh, St. Louis, uh, to get Terry Kennedy. And there was a bunch of players involved. And I think Gene Dennis and myself went to St. Louis. And so I went to St. Louis at the winter meetings. The winter, winter meetings were there that year. And I met Whitey Herzog and uh, Whitey congratulated me on being a St. Louis Cardinal. Uh, I was there for a couple of days, uh, then flew back to uh, San Diego and picked the newspaper up the next morning and fingers and Simmons and Bukovich traded to Milwaukee. And that's how I found out about it, it was in the newspaper. Uh, and, uh, Bruce Suter had just gotten traded from the Cubs to the Cardinals. So Whitey had Bruce Suter and myself at the same time. And that just wasn't going to work. So uh, I think Whitey had to figure out some kind of a deal to get rid of one of us. So he decided to make that uh, trade to Mil- uh, to Milwaukee. That's how I ended up with the Brewers three days later. But I didn't find out. No one ever called me. I just found out in the newspaper the next day. Wow. The way times have changed, man. I tell you, it's crazy. Oh, Oh, yeah, it is. From 81-85, you're with the Brewers, and in 1981, you're the American League MVP, and you're the Cy Young winner. And that was kind of a split season. Did you have success right away then coming in with Milwaukee? Uh, yeah, I know. I, uh, I, had a, uh, I had a pretty good spring training, and uh, uh, got along. I, I loved going to Milwaukee simply because they had a great offensive team. Uh, you know, the, Everybody knew that they were hitting a lot of home runs, Scoring runs, they had some great players: Robin Yount, Paul Molitor, Ben Ogilvy, Cecil Cooper, Corman Thomas. I mean, you didn't want to face that lineup, and so I knew I was going to a good team that were going to score a lot of runs. And uh, first, uh, you know, month and a half of the season, I was I was pitching good, getting a lot of saves, getting a lot of work. And then uh, we got to the; they were still in negotiations with uh, the owners, and they they cut the season short uh, by fifty days. They had we had a, we had to strike. And so I was pitching great up until that time. And, um, 
we had that 50 day strike where, you know, I, I stayed in Milwaukee for 50 days. I, you know, I went out to a high school and I threw to uh, some catchers at a high school during the strike. Some players went, went home. Uh, we knew that the players, uh, uh, the uh, owners had gotten a 50 days of insurance. So at the end of the 50 days, that's when they said, okay, we couldn't break the union. We started playing again. So there was two halves of the season that year. Whoever was in, whoever finished the first half in first place was in the playoffs. Whoever won the second half would be in the playoffs and they would have a, a playoff uh, games. So uh, we ended up uh, losing the first half. The Yankees won. And then in the second half, we won. And so we had to play the Yankees in a, in a uh, five-game playoff to see who went to the uh, American League uh, championship team. And uh, so we got beat by the Yankees in five, but uh, but I I had uh, I had a good year. I came right back after the uh, the fifty day layoff. In fact, the first game I pitched in was the All Star game in Cleveland. I ended up getting a loss. I was so rusty, I had no clue. <laughs> so I ended up Mike Schmidt hit a home run off me, and uh, I ended up getting a loss for that game. But uh, uh, but the rest of the you know the whole season I, I pitched great. I had a great ERA. Uh, I think I had like 28 saves. Uh, it, was a, it was a fun year. Yeah, especially getting the MVP and winning the Cy Young. And then in 82, you experienced some pain from a torn muscle in your right forearm. You saved 29 games battling through this pain and unfortunately missed the World Series, which is to this date Milwaukee's only trip to the World Series. When did you start really feeling that there was some discomfort there? Well, up until it happened, uh, really, I didn't really feel anything. It was just one of those things. Uh, we had just gotten Don Sutton in a trade. We were in first place, and it was a doubleheader that night. We were playing Cleveland. And uh, uh, Don pitched a great ball game. I think I came in in the seventh inning with a couple run leads. And uh, through three or four pitches, it was fine. And then on one pitch, I felt like a burning sensation in my elbow. And uh, couldn't figure out what it was. It was really painful. And uh, I threw a, a couple more pitches, and it I couldn't get the I could hardly get the ball to the plate, so I just called timeout, and I I called uh, for Harvey Keene, our manager, to come out to the mound. I said I told Harvey, I said, look, something's matter with my elbow here. It's I, it's really sore. I I don't think I can pitch right now. So they took me out of the game, and the doctor looked at me, and he just said it was like a strained muscle. Uh, so he said, just take a couple couple of weeks off and, you know, don't not throw it, should be okay. So that's what I did. And at the time, they had to, they had to fill out the roster for the uh, playoffs. So they had, they had to put you, get your 25-man team. So they kept me on, hoping that I was going to be able to pitch. And I couldn't. And two weeks later, I threw, I couldn't throw. Uh, it got to World Series time. And they still kept me on. And I told them, I said, guys, I can't throw. There's no way I can pitch. I even tried throwing batting practice in St. Louis before the World Series, and I couldn't. I couldn't even throw batting practice, and they should have just taken me off the list and added another guy. But um, you know, it ended up being a tore muscle, and I had to have it reattached that winter. Uh, or the next, really, the next year, I lost all of the eighty-three seats because the the team doctor misdiagnosed it, and so I lost all of the eighty-three seasons. Went to spring training and couldn't pitch. Finally, they said, well, you're going to have to have an operation. So I spent all winter long when I could have had something done, and they just waited too long. Yeah. 
Something I could do about it. <laughs> no, and then unfortunately in August in 84, you, you had a herniated disc. After the 85 season, you decide, okay, I, this is it. I'm going to retire with a 2.9 ERA, 341 saves. It was the most in MLB at that time, along with 1,299 strikeouts. But then after the 85 season, you get an offer from Pete Rose to come play for the Cincinnati Reds. And it really didn't work out because uh, the owner had a <laughs> clean cut policy. And I'll let you use the quote. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got, well, I got, I was under contract in 1986 for the Brewers. Uh, George Bamberger, the manager, and I just didn't, didn't get along. We didn't, I didn't, we didn't see eye to eye on anything. And so I had 17 saves in the, that year, but. I had a, uh, a clause in my contract. I, I, my, my base salary that year was, uh, $200,000, $200, I think. And which was really low because I just had a back operation. They didn't know I was going to make the team. So I signed this $200,000 contract, but I had a clause in there that if I didn't make the team and I pitched every game that I got into, if I came in and got one out, I got 20 grand. So. Uh, no matter what, every game that I came into, I was going to get $20,000. They didn't think I was going to make the team. Well, I made the team uh, as the closer. I pitched in 47 games that year. And uh, at the last month of the season, the team, we were kind of out of it. We weren't going to win. So uh, George Bamberger sat me down. He didn't pitch me for a whole month because he knew that I was going to get 20000 bucks for every game. So they didn't even use me. I, didn't pitch, I think I pitched in one game in the whole month of September. And so I just, you know, I had I had a blowout with him, uh, and then uh, they said they were going to trade me. So instead of trading me, they just gave me my unconditional release. And so even though I was under contract the following year to uh, play for the uh, Brewers, they didn't even want me to go to spring training. That's, it was uh, I think that year was a collusion. They had the collusion contracts and whatnot. They were trying to weed out all the uh, big name players who were making a lot of money. And so I was one of those, but, uh, but because I was still under contract, uh, the uh, Cincinnati Reds was interested in me. So I would have had to have played for whatever the amount that I had uh, under contract with the Brewers. So, uh, I'm sitting at home and my phone rings and Pete Rose is on, I called up and he, I said, hello. I said, hello. He said, this is Pete. I said, Pete, this is Pete. This is Pete Rose from Cincinnati. Uh, I said, oh, okay, Pete, what's going on? He said, well, I've just talked with our coaching staff and our uh, front office, and uh, we think that you could help us out next year in the bullpen. We need a bullpen. We need a closer. And I said, that's fine. I said, you know, I just got released by the Brewers, so I, I could really sign with anybody. So he said, uh, I said, great. Uh, I'll have our general manager call you up the next day and set up everything. I said, okay, that's fine. I'll see you then. So the next day, the general manager called me up. I can't remember Hauser, I think his name was. Uh, called me up and said, look, uh, I talked with Pete. Uh, we want you to be at spring training in uh, February. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. But there's just one thing. You have to cut your mustache. I said, what? He said, yeah, you're, we have a no facial hair policy in Cincinnati. Mark Schatz, our owner, says you cannot have any facial hair. I said, I have to say, what difference does it make whether I have a mustache? You know, as far as my ability as a player. He says, well, that's just the way Marge is. I said, well, let me think about this. So I, I thought about it. Uh, I, I, so I talked to my wife about it. and says, My wife said, look, you do whatever you want to do. So I thought about it, and I called up the house the next day. And I said, uh, uh, I said to him, I said, look, I don't think I'm going to do this. I'm not 
shave my mustache off. He said, if one more shot to shave for St. Bernard, and I'll shave my mustache. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, I never heard back from her. <laughs> <laughs> So the so you got your how, answer. That's how, my, that's how my career ended. <laughs> 1992, you're inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. You joined Hoyt Wilhelm as the second reliever inducted. Talk to me about uh, feelings when you got the call that you were going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, well, it doesn't get any better. Uh, you know, I was on the ballot in, in 91, uh, but, you know, I wasn't sure. I couldn't, there's really nothing I could go on as far as a relief pitcher getting into the Hall of Fame because, no one, there was no really uh, closers in other than Hoyt, and Hoyt was a knuckleball pitcher, and he had gotten in years before I did, so I had no, no gauge to say, you know, well, think whether I'm going to get in or not. So uh, um, in 91, I had some people over at my house. They said, you know, if you get the call, you're going to get it around six, five or six or seven o'clock in the evening. So uh, I just kind of stayed at my house, and, and the phone never rang. So I, I missed it by like 30 votes the first time in 1991. So in 92, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of hype going on that I was going to get in. So I had a, a restaurant in San Diego called Trophies. So I decided to have a lot of friends come down to Trophies. And I, I, you know, I, I, I took out the back end of the restaurant just with my friends and family and everything, just in the hopes that I might get a phone call there. So, uh, uh, so I, the, the hall, uh, Major League Baseball had called me up and said, where are you going to be in case you get in? Where are we, we going to call you? At? I said, well, just call me at my restaurant. So um, at about 7 o'clock, uh, I got a phone call from Major League Baseball. And uh, a guy on the other end said, I'd like to congratulate you. You've just been voted in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, we're going to uh, send you some stuff uh, as far as flying out. You have to fly out tomorrow morning to New York to meet the press. I said, perfect. So uh, I said, thank you very much. And that was basically it. Um, and uh, it's a dream come true. You never you never think about it when you're a player, you're getting into the Hall of Fame because this, that's something that's so far out of your mind. But when you actually get the call, it's, uh, it's a great feeling. And does the emotions then set in when you have to do your induction speech and, the whole, and everything's actually happening in front of you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the induction speech is the hardest thing I think anybody in the world has got to go through. <laughs> I mean, uh, my, I think my speech was like 20 minutes long, and I don't I don't talk a whole lot. I don't do a whole lot of speeches. But uh, getting through that one, I mean, it's very emotional for every player. I don't care who you are. Uh, you get up there, and then you start talking about your family or your friends, guys on your other on teams that you played with what it meant, everything like that. I mean, it's a very emotional speech that you have to get through. And uh, it was tough for me, especially when they you know, get to the part where you have to, you know, you talk about your, uh, your dad, your mom and all that. But uh, uh, I enjoy going back. I've been back every year since then. And uh, that's one of the things I enjoy is seeing these other guys, uh, the new guys that are coming in try and get through their speech. It's a tough deal, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Enjoyed it. Cooperstown's on my bucket list. I need to get out there and, and go through that thing one day. So it's definitely something I want to uh, see myself or after baseball or when did you pick up golf? Well, I played golf since I was nine years old. Uh, I was, uh, my, we lived next to a golf course and uh, it was a private club and I, I would jump over the fence at, uh, you know, after school and, uh, 
I had a couple of clubs. I just go out and hit golf balls on the golf course until I got chased off. And uh, so that's where I first started playing golf. Never played any high school golf. Just played with friends, more or less. And then when I, you know, uh, started playing ball, uh, you know, ball, especially pitchers at spring training, that's all we did was play golf. There's only so much you can do at, at workout. In the morning, you do your running, you get your throwing in, and then the rest of the day, if you're not pitching that day, you go out and play golf. So I just picked up the clubs, and, you know, that was in the uh, uh, you know early, mid-60s. mid, mid 60s, I started playing a whole lot of golf, and I've played it ever since. played on the Celebrity Golf Tour for a while. Third was your highest finish. Was that uh, was that right. fun? Was that fun just to play on that tour? Oh yeah, it was fun. I mean, we uh, there were some pretty good sized purses. We had half a million dollar purses uh, uh, in uh, at most of the golf tournaments. I played up at Lake Tahoe. I, I usually finished in the top ten, uh, four, five, six, seven times. Uh, and and uh, uh, we were playing in Dallas at a golf tournament. I finished third. I had like a twenty foot putt. Uh, finished in third place. I didn't know it at the time, but it was. The putt was worth $28,000, and I made it. <laughs> if they told me before I putted it, I would have, I would have dropped the club. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, that was the best finish I really had was Dallas. And, uh, it was, we, had, we had some nice, get some nice checks. Rick Roden is a great golfer, and he won a whole lot of tournaments on that tour. Uh, so, um, but yeah, the third place was my best finish. And you still enjoy golf today. You know, we went out to recently here at Reflection Blade Golf Club, and for those folks... Go ahead and look that up for me, please. It's located in the heart of beautiful Lake Las Vegas. Go to reflectionbaygolf.com. That's reflectionbaygolf.com. It's a top 100 course that the public can play. It's a Jack Nicholas signature design. It played host to the Wendy's three tour challenge from 1998 to 2007. And Raleigh can attest, it is a great track. Yes, it is. I really enjoy. In fact, I just joined the club and uh, we played uh, oh, about a week or so ago. And uh, beautiful golf course. I love it. It's got some great holes on it. There's four of them that are right on the lake too. That are they're really nice. Yeah, and you can still play to this day. I can attest to that. Sell that firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple parties, but uh, it's been a while since I played with the damage going on. Some of the golf courses were closed down for a while. But uh, I still go out and hit balls. I mean, I'm 70, I'm 73 right now. I just played up at Boulder the other day and shot my age. So I shot a 73 about a week and a half ago. Still good. Okay for an old guy. I guess you can shoot your age. That's shooting pretty well. <laughs> Raleigh, thanks for your time today, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Everybody else, make sure you check out our Patreon page for the Extra 5, and you'll get the Extra 5-minute interview with Raleigh as well. To get that, go to patreon.com slash before the lights. For show notes, go to our website, beforethelightspod.com, and you can click on the episode page. Please follow us on Instagram at before the lights podcast. Thanks for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. Until next time, everybody. A salute, a chin chin.